Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, Joe Hamier. And me, James Walton. And this week, with the 2023 Booker Prize winner ceremony only days away, we've got a chance to find out what this year's winner might be in for, because we're talking to last year's winner, Shehan Karanatalaka, who triumphed in 2022 with his novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, set in his home country of Sri Lanka. And James, I believe you reviewed the book when it first came out, so I'm hoping you liked it. Uh, yeah, fortunately, uh, I really, really liked it. Although um, it's not an easy book to summarise because so much is going on, but let me have a go. Uh, I mean, one of the problems is there can't be many books that simultaneously bring to mind Agatha Christie, Salman Rushdie, Raymond Chandler, Armistad Mopan, John le Carré and Stranger Things. Uh, but this is definitely one of them. Uh, what with it being a whodunit, a race against time political thriller, a hard-boiled detective tale, a ghost story, a gay love story, a magic realist novel, as well as a, a pretty fierce piece of reportage about the Sri Lanka civil wars of the 1980s. So the main character is called Marley Almeida, a photojournalist who on the first page wakes up dead uh, in an afterlife that's kind of bureaucratic and chaotic, um, but then he's eventually sort of processed, uh, and he's given seven days or seven moons uh, in the world of the in-between, uh, to find out who murdered him before he's sent into the light. He also wants to find some way of getting his old boyfriend Dee Dee and Dee Dee's cousin Jackie to discover and then to publish uh, the photos he's hidden uh, of massacres uh, and of the high-ranking officials responsible for them, uh, which he thinks will um, affect Sri Lanka and indeed the world. Uh, along the way, he looks back on his often rackety life and also speaks to several fellow ghosts, uh, most of them murder victims too, whose stories between them add up to a grisly account of the many factions and groups killing each other in Sri Lanka including the Tamil Tigers, the Communist JVP, and the Sri Lankan Army. There's also plenty of foreign involvement from various shady Indians, Americans, Brits, and others, none of whom, it's fair to say, Joe, have Sri Lanka's best interests at heart. Now, if this sounds like a pretty heady mix, then that certainly wouldn't be inaccurate. But what I especially loved about the book is that all the different elements are done properly. So the whodunit part, for example, has several plausible suspects, all with genuine motives, before an unguessable revelation at the end. Photos become Hitchcock-style MacGuffin, in which the goodies and many baddies are all looking for them, uh, uh, in a way that brings any number of exciting cliffhangers. And the reportage is a thoroughly researched expose of real-life atrocities. And though I might not have given that impression, it's all done with a great lightness of touch and a lot of good jokes. Uh, so with all that being said, we had a great time talking to Shehan uh, about many things, uh, principally uh, what it's like to be you know, at the winner ceremony on the night, the emotions involved, the prep involved, the manicures one may have. And the uh, abstinence involved as well with a two two glass maximum, I think. Yes. And um, and we do speak to him a little bit more about the seven moons of Mali Almeida, as well as his own reading habits and his taste in music. It's a wide-ranging but really fun interview, I think. And cricket, of course, Jeff. Oh, and how could I forget the cricket? <laughs> So without further ado, I think we should play our interview with Shehan. Why not? Shehan, welcome to the Booker Prize podcast. Thank you so much for coming on for us. So I'm wondering if we can go back a year to a few days before the ceremony. When did you arrive in London and do you remember how you were feeling? Yeah, so... Look, I mean, it's been it's been over a year. It's been thirteen months. Um, it was October eighteenth when when it happened, and for whatever reason, ceremonies in late November. So I get to hold on to my crown and sash and tiara for a little while longer <laughs> and travel the world. Uh, but yeah, look, I've I've gone back and thought about it and revisited that moment. What, what a bizarre year it was, twenty twenty two, because uh, you know, I guess people forget Sri Lanka was on 
complete economic collapse and people were on the streets. And uh, that was the backdrop to which I got the the long list news and the short list news. We were in petrol queues and uh, shouting down presidents and um, yeah, jumping in his pool and uh, all of that stuff was happening. And Sri Lanka was surprisingly winning the cricket as as well. And during that time, this this long list short list thing happened. So so I got there. I was like, and it it had been such a journey to get this book even published. And just to finish it, it was seven years. It was, um, and there was a very real possibility that it wouldn't get published in the UK. That's what the initial response was. So. My mindset was in that year was like, okay, it's going to get published in the UK. It's done. My job's done. Move on to something else. And then busy dealing with the dystopia that we were living in. So I came over thinking, book a shortlist. That's not too shabby. At least the book's going to get read in the UK, reviewed. Um, You know, that's fine. And, you know, me and my wife, we get to dump the kids with the grandparents. Have a nice week in London. Of course, it wasn't. It was a very stressful week because you're there with, and you know, all, all the books. At that time, I hadn't read uh, the other shortlisties, but you know it's all quality. Percival Everett's there, Claire Keegan, and um, and we're all really nervous and polite to each other. But these are scary interviews, live, you know, on BBC and this and that. So I just remember turning up on Monday, yeah, uh, dressed in this suit and just thinking, okay, today I don't need to speak. This is great. Um, and I was telling my wife also, yeah, someone else is probably going to win. It's a dice roll. We all know this. One in six, someone's going to win, and then we can go and have a nice holiday in Cornwall. I can start my next book. And that's kind of where I went in with it. Um, uh, So I suppose I joined the occasion. But of course, I knew that, uh, you know, I had a few notes in my pocket because you don't want to wing it uh, in that situation. So I had a few notes, but I I went in thinking, yeah, let's have a nice time. Uh, And uh, I didn't drink too much. Ramesh Gunasekara, the great Sri Lankan writer who'd been shortlisted a few times, told me, yeah, don't uh, drink more than two glasses of wine because if you lose, you might make a fool of yourself. If you win, you might make a bigger fool of yourself. So I took the advice. But yeah, went in with zero expectations. And uh, yeah, then suddenly came out to the to the chaos that has only just, you know, abated, I would say. That's so funny because I, I was at the ceremony that year and I remember thinking very clearly that your book would win. I actually said this to the table I was sat with and had this really smug feeling of satisfaction when the Seven Moons of Mali Almeida was announced. You didn't bet on it. I know you guys done a podcast on the bookies and the booker. Um, (laughs) I should have bet on it, actually. It might might be regarded as insider trading, I think, from from us. Yeah, that's true. I'd get done for for fraud. Um, I also wondered that, because I was thinking of betting on on all the other guys, uh, hoping to make a profit (laughs) either way. But yeah, that would be kind of match fixing as well, right? So I, yeah, so I, I abstained. I love the detail of the of the black nail polish. Yeah, I'm still rocking it. Yeah, no, you're still um, rocking it. <laughs> yes, I. Yeah. So could you explain the significance of the black nail varnish for us, please? Well, I'd like to say it has to do with my research into Sri Lankan folklore and the things that I found, and it was part of a ritual. But to be to be honest, it was uh, the video of More Than Words by Extreme. Nuno Betancourt, the guitarist, had black fingernail polish. And um, that was the the song that I, the first song that I learned. And it's just one of those juvenile things you do when you're into your 40s, which you shouldn't be doing. But I used to paint <laughs> my nails and, you know, play guitar. And I play guitar not very well, but I like the way it looks. It almost looks as good as the guy on MTV. 
And I sort of was doing this. And then my wife said, look, you're going to the Booker Prize. You're going to meet the queen. I'm going to take you to a manicurist and get this nonsense off. So, but foolishly, she left me alone with the manicurist. And uh, I was sitting there while she was taking the polish off. And I said, madam, uh, a bit of your finest uh, black matte polish, please. I'm about to go and meet the queen. And so she, she painted it. And uh, then I was holding the Booker Prize with this. And so now I have to keep it up. But yeah, it still looks good when I'm playing guitar is the, is the true answer. So I guess these are juvenile things that I'm going to carry into my 50s as well. Now, no, no one approves, but I held the Booker Prize with my black nail polish hand. So now I have to keep that up. And when do you when do you actually know that you've won? I think in the, I think in the old old days when cameras were on massive wheels, you know the BBC cameras would start trundling towards the winners' table before the announcement. But is it is it a bit more subtle now? Do you just not know until it's read out, or do you or are there signs that you maybe maybe it's me before the actual announcement? Um, well, I'll give you a little insider tip. Um, watch the lighting guy. So that's uh, that's the equivalent now of the the trundling camera is uh, the light well, I wasn't watching the lighting guy watched the seating arrangements but of course no you, you get a heads up I think the publishers for the short list and the long list but for this certainly not and um, though I suspect members of the press might have it might have leaked I don't know because I had a few knowing conversations and few strange conversations beforehand um, but no no it's as far as our table was concerned um, yeah it was a complete surprise. So something that I remember from that night is uh, you were giving your speech and Samira Ahmed was really chivying you along because of the time constraints uh, mm. for BBC coverage. Um, was that like you seemed really happy, but like in retrospect, do you feel annoyed about that? How do you see how do you remember that moment? Well, we were told, I think maybe even a few days before one minute in the event that you should win you have one minute and i thought come on that's ridiculous um and, and i said look you're not going to win but you know one minute let's worry about that when we get to it if we get to it and so i had a obviously a few people to thank i also did want to speak in singhala and in tamil so and you know my singhala is decent uh my tamil i've just been taking lessons so i had to get my tamil uh, language teacher to give me something to say so i had that all lined up and um I didn't think they were going to really enforce it. I mean, in Sri Lanka, we say, yeah, we'll be there in 10 minutes and they're there half an hour. So one, I thought one minute was, you know, Sri Lankan time and I thought I could take it. But, <laughs> but I realized later that um, it was simulcast on one of the radio stations uh, and therefore the 10 o'clock news cannot be at 10.01. And, um, and also, I think the nightmare when you speak in a foreign language, they don't know if I'm swearing or inciting a riot or, or something. So I, I, I can understand why they were. Uh, but I... I got to say as much as I could and, uh, yeah, thanked everyone, so it was fine. But, uh, yeah, it was a bit odd in rescue. I think since it's – I haven't watched it. I really haven't. Like, people send it to me and make comments. But I think I took seven minutes, which is okay, Sri Lankan time, for one minute. Uh, but then I heard that I met Eleanor Caton and uh, she said they were given 20 minutes. Yeah, one minute Sorry. is nuts, though, isn't it, really? Um, mm. just, just for those who haven't caught up, what, what did you say in – uh, in, in the Tamil and the Singalese? If I recall, I think I might have made a crack about the cricket because we just lost to Namibia. and uh, But I said, you know, if this can happen, anything can happen. And I, I think I saw I did that. And I just said that I wrote the book for you. I didn't write it for, and this is true, I didn't think about a publisher in London or a producer in Hollywood or anything. I wrote it for Sri Lankans who had lived through this. 
And in Tamil, I just, uh, I couldn't be too ambitious. It was just a little slogan about, you know, let's keep all telling our stories because look, there's plenty of untold stories of the last 30 years in Sri Lanka. And um, I'm really slow. I only write two books every 15 years. So I said, you know, we should all <laughs> tell our stories and um, yeah, something to that effect. So it was, yeah, just a bit of sloganeering and a crack about the cricket. But yeah, that was it. Nothing too controversial. Not inciting a riot. No, no, certainly not. No. <laughs> um, one, one of the things that happens for a winner at a booker ceremony that's a bit out of the ordinary for the everyday person is that you end up having a chat with the Queen Consort. And what, what was that like? Do you, you know, were you in any way nervous? Does your mind go blank? Because I think mine would. I so I look my my mum's really into the royalty so is my wife and everyone around me I I watch the crown I think it's a great series um Peter Morgan big fan uh, and but um again she was um they'd visited I think her and the king had visited Sri Lanka and they were talking about the beaches and uh, you know obviously they're very well trained they know how to speak to uh, people but so we had a nice conversation and uh, yeah um it's only later that, yeah, my wife freaked out, took some pictures, and then my aunties afterwards asked, Were you, not, you weren't supposed to touch the queen? Because I think we ended up uh, giving her a hug. I didn't really think. You know, we are taught if an auntie gives you a nice Uh-oh. present, you must say thank you, auntie, and hug her. So I, I did that. But yeah, there was a pro among my aunties back home. You shouldn't have done that. But yeah, very nice lady. And we had a, had a nice chat. But no, so I wasn't too uh, odd. Well, well, Joe rolls her eyes a little bit. Can I? Do, you mentioned cricket. I'd like to just come back to the week. Does, does, does cricket affect the national mood in Sri Lanka? I mean, how is how is is it is it a big part of everyday life? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, this wasn't surprising, so I don't think. And there's not that level of sort of violence that you associate maybe with our neighbours in the subcontinent. There's no, you know, players getting things thrown at them and houses. There's none of that. And also, we're resigned to. We've been losers for most of when I've been growing up in the 80s, so we're kind of used to that, but there's always hope. Okay, and just, just before we move on from cricket, and get, but this is about books, I promise, because your first book was Chinaman and was voted by no less than Wisdom as the second best cricket book ever and the best cricket novel ever. Um, presumably that was quite an honour. Of course, that was amazing. I mean, this is like a good few years after the book had come out and I was well into writing Seven Moons. Um, but yes... Um, it, um, I think it beat out the lights of Conan Doyle and P.G. Wardhouse. And so, yeah. uh, you know, so I'll, I'll take that for sure. Um, and yeah, no less than wisdom. W.G., the lead character, the drunken journalist in the book would have been very proud for sure. Of returning to a non-cricket based life oh, question. Yes. Yeah, 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 enough cricket. Um, yeah. This is surely a question you've been asked many times now, but I, I wonder maybe if we could track the progress of a year of the response to your win in Sri Lanka because you're you're not the first Sri Lankan winner that was Mike Ondaatje but you're the first author to still live there um but at the same time there may be a sense that the book paints a pretty grim picture of Sri Lanka so was the main response sort of national pride or was it a bit more muted how how has it gone over the last year well, when it when it happened, uh, that happened right during the height of the Aragalaya and the economic collapse. And so you don't have petrol or gas and uh, food stuff. So books are non-essential. So no one had read the book when when the win happened. But we celebrate wins. So I, I remember 
uh, yeah, being congratulated by the president and the leader of the opposition and all these politicians. And um, yeah, I think I I don't anyway respond to emails, let alone tweets. So I let the Twitter mob descend and go, have you guys actually read the book? Uh, we think it might be about guys like you and, and all of that. But I think initially it was, we needed a win. So um, it was, it was taken. And now obviously books have come in and people have read it. I think predominantly, especially those who lived through it, you can't look, I haven't, I know it's got talking animals and demons and, and ghosts, but I haven't made up any of the, the facts of the, the carnage and the conflict. If anything, you know, the real story is far more gruesome. So I don't think even a detractor could say that I made that stuff up. Um, but of course, you always get trolls. And um, there's been yeah a few trolls who kind of review and um, have left comments. And the gist of the argument is, and again, I've heard it before when a Sri Lankan film, say, wins, that talks about the war, uh, wins at Cannes or Venice or something. It's like, uh, is this how you win awards in the West by portraying our island as a bunch of savages killing each other? And uh, this is how you sell this dystopia to the West. Um, and, but, you know, you, it's, I mean, I wish it was, that's why, I mean, I alluded to that in the speech as well, that I wish this book was pure fantasy. And I did have a moment in 2015 when Sri Lanka was on a peaceful footing and it looked like things might improve that would people believe that these things happened? Would they think I made it up? Um, but so I think generally, generally the, the reaction has been positive. Um, it's the book has now been translated into many languages and, you know, most of all, Singhala and Tamil. So it remains, remains to be seen what happens when a wider readership gets hold of it. But I think, look, generally, these are the, these are the things we did to each other. And I don't think anyone can dispute. I'm not, I don't think the political commentary in the book, it's, it's pretty shallow. I think it just scratches the surface and says, there's no, there's no good guys in this war. It's just, bad guys maybe there's no good guys in any war but also i felt safe because i'm writing about the late 80s and we've had many catastrophes since then and also late 80s means most of the characters are dead who could take offense so that's why i feel a bit safer um and we have our present day catastrophes to worry about so i think yeah so far it's been all right moving on to a very classic book of question uh you were the mm. recipient of a wonderful tax-free 50 grand that every every writer dreams of what did you do with the money mm. well i uh, i bought a drum kit that was the extravagant thing for my son of course because he's taking drum lessons oh, yes. but um yeah you can't see my room I'm, I'm here with five guitars and a keyboard and i thought i needed a drum kit um, aside from that no i mean look i spend my money same things i did when i was like 13 it's books and was cds then then now it's vinyl and yeah uh, but yeah it's now it's guitar pedals so i'm i still spend money like a teenager guitar pedals records and books um so yeah i've had to acquaint myself with accountants and tax consultant and even investment advisors who you know never would open the door to me before um so yeah i'm being pretty sensible so i may get another guitar or a saxophone <laughs> but i think aside from that yeah I mean, my, my kids should be okay. But I think, look, more than the prize itself, I think what the booker does is... Now, the book's been published in 20-something languages, maybe a few more. Um, so, yeah, you... Firstly, I'm getting to travel around to these places. But the readership, you know, before my readership was ex exclusively subcontinental. And, you know, nothing wrong with that. That was fine. I kind of thought that's who I'm writing for. But so I think that's what the real thing, rather than... So if a booker winner wants to bust it all... 
on uh, in Vegas. Uh, I think it's fine because I think it's not being, you know, you can celebrate how you like. Um, I celebrate with a drum kit. Well, there are two very interesting points there. Um, maybe we'll come on to the expansion of your audience in a second. But um, I I looked at your, your website um, a few nights ago and was really struck to see that as well as an author, you still advertise yourself as a copywriter. And do you, do you still mm. copyright? Do you, have you kept your day job? Um, yes, yeah, so I just uh, I just after the European tour, I, so I also did a bit of travel writing, a bit of feature writing. Uh, so yeah, I did a little travel piece from Europe. It's it's kind of strange not to, and I've kind of organized my day around it. Like for so long, you know, you do a couple hours of work, then you do a couple hours of writing, and uh, and I've kind of worked it that way. But thing is, I don't have to. I don't have to take on X amount of jobs to pay the bills. Now that's the this is the the fortune and the yeah. The good fortune of this this thing that, uh, but I still yeah I still keep it going. Um, why not? Because copy I still enjoy copywriting. I still enjoy travel writing. It's not the path to uh, riches and fame, but it's it's great writing experience. you um, even if you're writing about milk powder or banks, you you learn something from it. So, um, what yeah. what does it give you that writing a novel doesn't? Um, one. So I think the best thing I got from you know, and I used to not work from home in my pajamas. I used to go. To, into ad agencies and yeah do a day job um is that you have to be creative every day you can't wait for inspiration to strike or uh, you can't blame write, writer's block uh, if the client's turning up tomorrow morning and you have nothing you need to somehow find a way to come up with and so then you develop techniques to deal with the panic deal with the pressure but also to come up with ideas and have something you know, it may not be great, but have do something every day. And I think that's a useful thing for a novelist as well, or a short story writer, that you don't wait for inspiration. And you have, I mean, I, this is the first week that I've worked like properly since the, like started on Monday. And I, yeah, I, I'm working on a few new things. And um, yeah, most days are bad, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, nothing. And then yesterday I wrote a few sentences. And today, if I wasn't interrupted by this podcast, I may, might have written a symphony, but um, I, um, sorry, I came close. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, two sentences is fine um but yeah i think that was the main thing that you just turn up every day and yeah if you get a page on friday that's a good week um so going back to the expansion of your audience something that i find really really fascinating is the fact that um the seven moons went through a really rigorous editing process with your uk publisher i believe Mm. yes um what sort of amendments do you have to make did you have to make to sort of get your novel over to an anglophone or western audience because i had already been published in india hadn't it as chats with ghosts in 2020 is that chats right Chats with the dead yes yes chats with the dead, sorry. um so natanya jans uh my publisher and editor at sort of uh she hates me talking about this stuff she goes no no these are secrets don't tell anyone just say <laughs> you just corrected the grammar you can tell us. um <laughs> but yeah you you won't tell anyone yeah um, <laughs> initially it was out of so I had this relationship with uh, Natanya and Mark you know I knew they were um, I'd done travel writing assignments for them but they'd always been very generous and it's very rare to find uh, generous with their comments so I'd send them a story or something unrelated to what I was working with them and they'd give me really good feedback and so the chats with the dead I thought it was done and India was enthusiastic but also I mean it came out Jan 2020 so just before COVID but it sort of got reviewed a few times and nothing much happened. But more tellingly, the UK and the US people who 
had enjoyed Chinaman were found finding this difficult and said we were not sure Western readership will relate to this uh, very complicated war and this very complicated afterlife uh, and all these different strands. And so initially when Natanya came on board, um, that was, let's, and she, she when she read it, because I, I just sent her out a desperation saying, looks like this thing won't get published out of India. Um, uh, is it fixable? And uh, she said, yeah, I think it is, but it needs a lot of work. It needs, um, you just need to make it easier for a Western reader. Who knows? And I think that's a decent, like I didn't mind it. Again, back to my copywriting days, client changes your copy all the time. You think you've nailed it, you've cracked it, you've sent it, and it comes back on a Friday afternoon uh, with red marks through it. So I didn't mind that because I thought, look, Chinaman should be enjoyed by anyone who has never watched a cricket match. That was my brief. And I think it can be if you get past the first 20, 30 pages. It's a story about other stuff than cricket. Um, and so I thought, okay, fine. So make it. So I think one of the briefs was just make it so you know nothing about the Sri Lankan conflict. It's you have enough information to go by. Also, if you know nothing about the South Asian folklore about demons and ghosts and the afterlife, the rules should be clear. So initially that was all, and that was like six months of work to fix that, but it was the pandemic, so we have another year to play with. And then, I mean, I remember the comment, which I've said many times, and once it came back, and I think terrific work, Shehan, but I think the beginning's very confusing still, the ending doesn't quite land, and the middle's quite boring, but other than that, it's brilliant, and please keep going, and... In the end, if you compare Chats with the Dead with Seven Moons, which I don't really want to do personally, but I think Richard Simon, a Sri Lankan reviewer, has done and done a great job. It's the same, and he says it's it's uses the same words to tell a very different story, and I think that's probably fair. It's also a very funny book. I mean, why make it funny? I mean, on 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 the on the face of it, you know, it's it's not it's not a, a subject of full of laughs, but no. but the, it's a book full of laughs. Um, so it's not. Yeah, it's not like I wrote it uh, straight and added the jokes, I think, even with both, with both books. I mean, the first book, Chinaman's about an old man drinking himself to death and um, deciding to spend his last year watching cricket documentaries and chasing a cricketer. And it should be a depressing story. But I don't think it is because of the narrator being this archetype that, you know, we've all grown up with the Sri Lankan uncle, the drunk Sri Lankan uncle who is an expert on cricket, on world politics, on on, on any subject uh, after a few, you know, half a bottle or so. And so that character lent, the jokes lent itself to the jokes, even though when he's talking about his grim situation, he's seeing, yeah, poetry. And so I think it's choice of narrator as well, but maybe also, so maybe it's my sensibility that, and, you know, you can't talk about these gruesome things. Um, and it it'll be tough to write and probably doubly tough to read. But also, I think maybe it's the Sri Lankan sensibility that we have experienced absurdity and comedy and tragedy. And um, it's not a it's not a tragic or depressing place. Anyone who visited here, even you know, shortly after a catastrophe, will attest to that. It seems like even during the height of last year, the Aragalaya, and uh, when people were desperate and, and wondering where the next meal was coming from, the jokes never stopped. Even on the streets, there was anger and tension. But there was some hilarious chance to rival, you know, the football chance you hear in the stadiums and on online, the memes, people openly mocking their leaders with humor. And that's been Sri Lanka's way of coping with um, with the idea that, you know, this beautiful paradise has been wrecked by civil war, by dictatorship, by economic collapse. What is the reason for this? And yeah, we make jokes about it. 
which you know isn't always most productive, but it's better than punching each other. So yeah, I think optimism. I mean, you know, misplaced optimism and dark humor is part of the Sri Lankan makeup. So I think it wasn't really a big choice. Um, I, I liked Mali's voice, like I liked WG's voice, and he was sort of this catty, you know, closet gay guy um, with. Um, even when he's watching his body being chopped up, he he thinks of a few wisecracks and and things like that. And yeah, Shehan, uh, what are your influences as a writer, literarily or or otherwise? I'm actually always very interested in um, when uh, writers profess a particular love of music, whether music in any way influences their writing. But are there any authors or musicians that you look to? So I tend to just. Uh... You read stuff that you want to write like, and you read stuff related to the subject matter. So yeah, there's a lot of reading about the history of Sri Lanka's wars and and also ghost stories and um, you know right back from Lovecraft and Poe, um, M.R. James to um, yeah to Stephen King, Clive. But um, that's stuff I read as a teenager anyway. So it wasn't a big. I think that's the other thing um, with finishing a novel, even though I take so long. It's the research that because the research bears you down, so you need to find a topic you enjoy so i had to research cricket and drunks for the first one this one was ghosts and and war so that was pretty much it but i think in terms of writers um with both but certainly with this i mean i keep name checking kurt vonnegut um i read him for chinaman to get that curmudgeonly tone and certainly for this when you're talking about uh humanity's capacity for, for cruelty and atrocity and but you're doing it in a way that's actually entertaining almost jokey um douglas adams uh, george saunders so when lincoln in the bardo won the book i was devastated i thought oh my god they're gonna not a talking ghost book wins the you know, everyone's gonna say i'm ripping off this but of course that ended up inspiring me and the great man who i know you've had on the show um yeah i met him very briefly and uh and yes yeah, so i think writers margaret atwood as well who writing about grim subjects but uh, doing it in a way that's not grim that's actually entertaining and therefore a lot more heartbreaking uh but i think as a sri lankan writer you there was no path you know growing up in the 80s there wasn't even a shelf uh now you have a sri lankan section you have an asian section uh, there wasn't even a shelf for sri lankan books and if the ones you had were sort of self-published things that sounded like they were written by an englishman you know by a graham green or um uh E.M. Forster. It was, it was like, and that was how we wrote. We had to prove to ourselves that we could write as well as English person. Um, so I think the doors that open, obviously, Midnight's Children by Rushdie. I mean, I'm certainly not the only one in South Asia who, and but I think on a local level, it was Carl Muller, who I don't think Undachi and Ramesh Gunasekar were the celebr- and Shyam Selvadure were the celebrated writers. But I never thought I could write as elegantly as them. But Carl Muller similarly wrote how Sri Lankans spoke and that was a real and now you get now it's quite commonplace that we we don't try to write like people who don't sound like us that's that's seen as a mark of of good writing so I think those were the people that I tried to and that gave us permission I think and since Rashtid has been you know Arundhati Roy and you know uh, Adiga and like the and the golden age of Pakistani writers so I think Hanif and Mohsin Hamid and um Kamala Shamsi yeah. and Nakvi especially. You read a lot of these guys and they're talking about different dystopias to your own, but they're talking in in the way that, that we speak, which is not always correct, not always grammatical. Sometimes the syntax is all over, but it's got its own music to it. And so I think 
you can see that influence clearly. But if I look at my taste, it rain, I think you'd see a lot of pulp influence in here. I mean, I did read the Tibetan Book of the Dead and Dante's Inferno, and I read the religious texts. But I also read a lot of Clive Barker uh, and Sandman comics. And, uh, you know, the depiction of the afterlife owes a lot to Hellraiser, I think. And, um, um, yeah, so I think broadly speaking, those were the influences. And, of course, Cormac McCarthy. Um, not a lot of jokes there, but uh, certainly in describing violence uh, with poetry, mm. I think that was, I'd have the audiobook plugged in when I went to sleep. I don't know what that did to my dreams. I never remember them, but who knows? But yeah, those are the range of influences. Music, not so much, really. I, I tend to play just instrumental when I'm writing. It's only later, but... Yeah, the characters have terrible music taste, I think, all my characters. I think WG was into Meatloaf and Jackie's into Goth. Yeah, I don't know. It's a surprising amount of Shaking Stevens in the book, actually. Shaking Stevens, yes. No, I like Shaking Stevens, yes. Uh, he, was, he was the biggest selling singles artist in Britain of the 80s, I think, as well. Yeah, but I'm surprised to know that he was big in Sri Lanka as well. <laughs> he played. He played a stadium in 2017. I missed it, yeah. He's, he's big, yeah. And deservedly so. Elvis copied all his moves from Shaking Stevens. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to take us back a little bit to the conversation about yeah. influences because something I think that happens very often is that um, it's quite natural to talk about influences in a very abstract way. But mm. I'm always very interested to know how people read practically, what their reading habits are. Like, where do you prefer to read? Is there a time of day that you prefer? Do you underline? Do you bookmark? Do you believe in dog-earing? That sort of thing. Well, so I have, aside from the guitars, these piles of books. And they're always around a different topic. So there'll be a pile of short stories, a pile of maybe poetry, if I'm that way inclined. What am I looking at? There's a pile of stuff that I'm researching for a story. And so, yeah, you form these little, little bits and pieces. And I usually have about five to six in that pile, or maybe seven. Uh, and... Yeah, reading, I, I have to like schedule it like a workout. Otherwise, I don't get through the stuff I need to. And um, so it's usually early, really early in the morning. So maybe four or five in the morning for an hour. But it'll be it'll be one thing. And it may just be novels that I'm reading at the moment. And sometimes it, it's not related to anything. You might just read something for fun. Um, uh, but I have to have, I, I just feel that I think this is a compulsion I felt, you know, long before I started was that if you don't, if you don't read, if I if I didn't don't read today or write today, and now maybe I can expand to playing with my kids. If I don't do those three things, three things, the day is wasted somehow. And I may have done like some great things, but I feel like the day is wasted. And I think maybe that's a compulsion. So to get the compulsion out of the way, I yeah, wake up very early, read for an hour, write for an hour, take the kids to school, and then boxes are ticked. I can just watch YouTube and drink beer all day. It's fine. And so that's really it's 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 the morning where I. Do that, but you know, evenings I but it's always, yeah, it's in my room at this little chair surrounded by all these books and records. And um, uh, but yeah, it's generally the makeup, also, I curated there'll be something really challenging, uh, a classic that I you know should have read but haven't, and then just something fun, short story, a bit of non fiction, and a few silly things. And I just dip in and out, uh, until one has momentum, and then I'll smash it out in the in the evening. Uh, but yeah, I do have to share you because I, I felt that especially on the road in the past year, you go through weeks, uh, yeah, months where you haven't even, you've been stuck on the same book and that's quite depressing for me. So many books, so little time and you think, 
time I'm not spending reading, I'm wasting or writing. And uh, yeah. Can I can I ask what book you spent your morning with today? Yes, the world for sale. It's uh yeah, it's a bit of a, it might give you a clue what I'm writing. It's uh yeah, it's about um commodity traders, the world for sale. Javier Blas and Jack Farchi. It's um yeah non-fiction book um, and also but i was reading david sedaris his collected essays so i was flitting uh, between those two um so yeah about the robber barons who run our world and dave sedaris and his amusing but it kind of puts you in a nice mood for writing um uh reading good the stuff sedaris or the world for sale they both do <laughs> they both do <laughs> i believe you're going to the ceremony this november as well Yes, yes, I am. Do you have any any advice for the for this year's shortlistees on how to negotiate that difficult night? Wow! By the time I meet them, it'll be too late. I think they. Um, <laughs> but I would just say enjoy it because look, this is um, most of us write in anonymity and uh, and are quite content to do that as long as the books get written. And uh, this is something you wear as a badge forever. Booker shortlisted, um, and so that's a victory. I mean, that's the attitude I win. That's a victory, and um, so I would, yeah, just enjoy it. And yeah, um, there are a lot of terrifying things, and it's more terrifying if you win. And they leak what you have to do if you win, which is pretty much wall-to-wall interviews for the next forty-eight hours after you win. And you look at that, and maybe it's done to comfort those who don't, because you think, "Wow, I, I, that doesn't look like fun at all." Um, but yeah, I would just say um, you've all, you know, as hallmark as it is, you know, you've all won. It's all this is a badge you, no one can take from you. And uh, yeah, just enjoy the moment. And yeah, like Ramesh Kumasekara said, um, yeah, make sure you're not too drunk at the ceremony. Um, and uh, yeah, good luck to you. I'm glad to be uh, handing it over and crawling back into the shadows uh, and. <laughs> writing anonymously for however long it takes uh, but no it's been it's it's a great ride oh well, listen thank you so much for your time i think uh, uh it's been a delight talking to you and thank you thank you very much and uh congratulations again on the for the, for the rest of your thank reign you, as, as booker champion and uh we'll, we'll maybe see you at the dinner yes yes thank you Shayhan. looking forward to it thank you thank you joe and james thanks So, Joe, I think we both agree uh, uh, a cracking fella. Yeah, it, I definitely, like, everyone in the room has been laughing for the entirety of the yeah. interview. It's like, everyone would love to get a pint with Shehan. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully we will <laughs> come come the next few days. Uh, and, yeah, and obviously what, what you couldn't see on the podcast was that his room was indeed full of guitars and, books, and books. And I did like that idea that he spends his money like like he did when he was a teenager, basically on books and records. I'm guilty. I'm, I'm guilty as charged on that too. Yeah, um, I, I don't think I can get on board with the whole waking up at five to to read no, thing. No. Well, I like to think I'm a, re, a re, you know a bookish fellow, but yeah, <laughs> seven, five o'clock in the morning to read now. Nah. I extreme. don't think so. Um, but anyway, in the meantime, you can find out more about the Seven Moons of Molly Almeida at at thebookerprizes.com. We now uh, also have a Facebook book group. You can join at facebook.com/slash/thebookerprizes. A phrase with a lot of book in it. <laughs> And it's that time of the year. Please do remember to tune in on Sunday to find out live the winner of the 2023 Booker Prize. Uh, you can do that also at thebookerprizes.com. And next week we'll be reporting from behind the scenes of the ceremony. So you won't want to miss that.
And finally, do remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Substack at The Book of Prizes. Uh, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Supi production for The Booker Prizes. 